All right, you can start headed back towards your, uh, towards your seats now. All right, good morning, H2O family. Um, if you don't know already, uh, my name is Trevor, and I'm on staff here uh, at H2O Church Cincinnati, and I'm going to be uh, bringing the word to you uh, this morning. Um, can I just be honest with you real quick? I'm really tired, okay? I, uh, this, this last week, our whole staff team was, oh, whole staff team was in San Antonio, Texas at our annual staff conference. Um, so over the course of this past week, uh, I've been in a car for over 40 hours, and I've slept on college campuses all week in a hammock. Um, and now I'm back with you wonderful people today. Um, so today I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do my best, really, really, give, really give, give to you. Sorry about that. Um, uh, share with you like, what I believe the Holy Spirit's given me to, to share with you um, this morning, okay? Um, but I just wanted to just be honest with you. You know, I think that's, I think that's the best, best thing to do right now, is just to be honest with, with, with you, you know, about this stuff. Um, we had a ton of fun. We learned a lot uh, during our time in Texas. Um, it, was, it was really a great time, but there's honestly nothing like being back here with, with you guys. Um, so it's really, really great to be back here um, this morning. Um, this morning we'll be, we'll be continuing in our sermon series through the biblical book of 2 Corinthians. Okay? Um, 2 Corinthians is a really awesome book of the Bible. This has been a really great sermon series so far. Um, as we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, throughout this sermon series, uh, we're taking a look at, at what it means and what it looks like to be a faithful Christian servant. Okay? And we're going to be continuing in that today. We're looking at what it means and what it looks like to be a faithful Christian servant. Um, and also, uh, I know we mentioned this already, uh, I had slides pre- prepared, but obviously... Our projectors aren't working, um, so um, I'll, uh, I'll modif- modify my sermon a little bit just to make it uh, abundantly clear to you. Uh, I'll, I'll say things twice, you know, so you can really, like, pick up on it, that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, to, start out, to start out our time together here this morning, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been very protective of something in your life. Okay, so, yeah, pretty much all of us, you know, so maybe it was, like, maybe it was a pet you know, maybe it was a significant other, you know, maybe, maybe it was a toy, a Pokemon card, you know, a Lego set, a car, you know, wh- whatever, whatever it may be. Um, for me, I could be very protective of shoes that I really, really like. There's other shoes you may have seen me wear are completely torn apart, but uh, there's other shoes I have um, that, that I'm very, very protective of. Um, for example, I'm, I'm currently very protective of my Vans uh, and, and a pair of uh, Under Armour um, shoes that I bought in August. I had a picture of them. Um, they're pretty sweet, uh, but you'll just have to, uh, you'll just have to, to see me in them sometime. Um, and uh, before I decide to, to wear or put on either pair of these shoes, uh, I'll look at the weather forecast for that day to see if there's any rain or inclement weather coming. Uh, I'll think about if I'm going to be playing a sport that day or if my feet will be getting dirty that day. Um, and I'll even think about how much I'll be walking that day uh, just to like, prolong the life of my shoes. So, I think it's fair to say I'm pretty protective of my shoes, right? And this may, this may sound weird, kind of um, over the top, uh, but it's just, just the way I am and um, just the way it is when it comes to my shoes. Um, and from the Second Corinthians passage we're going to be looking at together uh, here this morning, we're going to see that as Christians, 
we're called to be very protective of the health and purity of our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Okay, that's what, that's what we're going to be jumping into today. Um, but before we jump into our main passage of Scripture this morning, I want to pray over our time together uh, and really welcome the Spirit of God with us in this place. Okay, so please, please bow your heads with me um, in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, you are good. God, you are strong and you are faithful and you are here. God, I confess that I'm weak today. But God, in my weakness, God, you are made strong. God, let today be such a good example, God, that it is not me, but God, it is you. And when we are ambassadors, it is not us, but God, it is you working through us, God. I honestly cry out to you as a humble and lowly man today. God, I pray that you would speak and move powerfully in me and through me. I pray you would open the hearts and the souls and the minds of the people here. They would, we would move closer to you today. Worship you more today. Love you more today. And moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the main passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at together this morning starts in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 6 and goes through the first verse of 2 Corinthians 7. So 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 2 Corinthians 7, 1. All right. Um, I'm going to read through the passage in its entirety. I'm going to allow you to, to, to scroll there or flip there or, or whatever. Um, and so I'm going to read it in, in its entirety, and then we'll go back through and break it down piece by piece. Okay? So 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 7, 1. The Apostle Paul writes, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. All right, so this is the passage we're going to be working with um, here this morning. The first thing I want to highlight in this passage is from the first one and a half verses, okay, where the Apostle Paul writes, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you. And from these first one and a half verses, we see that the Apostle Paul was calling out the Corinthians, was teaching them, instructing them, warning them, and challenging them, all these different things we see in, in these books, because he loved them. Right? He was teaching, instructing, warning, challenging, because he loved them so much. He says, we have opened wide our hearts to you, and we are not withholding our affection from you. He's making it clear to them that he loves them, that he cares for them so much. 
He wasn't just calling them out, teaching them, warning them, challenging them just for the sake of challenging or just for the sake of, of encouraging or teaching or instructing. Rather, he was doing so because he loved them. Right? I see the same thing in all of Paul's letters to the, to the different gatherings of believers, to the Philippians, the Colossians, uh, the Ephesians, the Galatians, the Thessalonians, the Romans, all of them. Um, Paul's ministry flowed from a heart of deep and genuine love for the people he was ministering to. And like Paul, we here at H2O love all of you guys so much. I want you to know this is a place you are so loved. We really, really do. And when we encourage you, when we teach you, when we instruct you, when we warn you, and even when we challenge you, we are doing that because we love you. And because we know and we are convinced that true fullness of life is found when we are living in line with God in his heart, in his word, in his spirit, in his desires for us. And it's my encouragement to all of you that when you all interact with each other, when you hold each other accountable, when you, when you encourage each other, when you teach each other, when you challenge each other, when you just ask how each other are doing, that you are doing so with a heart of genuine Christ-like love for your brothers and sisters. That you aren't just doing it for yourself or just for the sake of encouraging, teaching, challenging, that kind of stuff, but because you love each other. Because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not just for the sake of doing those things. And I want to point out to you that true godly love also involves speaking the hard truth, the honest truth, and the blunt truth in love to the people that you love. And we see this in the ministry of the Apostle Paul as well. So that's the first thing I wanted to, to point out to you from this passage. And after the Apostle Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians and to us that his ministry flowed from a heart of love, um, he goes on to write in verses 14 and 15, saying this, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? In verse 14, in this section of the passage, talks about not being yoked together with unbelievers. Okay? Not being yoked together with unbelievers. And this is the crux of what we're going to be talking about here this morning. And to help us really understand this, I want us to focus in on the word yoked. Okay? Because it's very important for us to understand the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using here in this biblical command. And now, there's a way to get yoked at the gym. Right? Grant, Bradley, Henry, Sam, yoked. Right? From their time at the, at the gym. Right? You know, you know it's true. Um, but that's not the kind of yoke that we're talking about here in 2 Corinthians 6. Right? That's, that's a different kind of yoked. Um, the yoke that the Apostle Paul is referring to in this passage is a term from farming. All right? And in the context of farming, and specifically ancient farming, uh, the yoke was the wooden cross piece that, go, that would go across the necks or the shoulders of two animals. Okay? And the, this yoke, uh, it, it, was, it was connected to them, but it was also connected to a plow behind them. So that when these two animals, uh, I had a diagram of it, but now I'm trying to kind of show you. Um, um, like, these two animals would be there. Let's say I'm the yoke, right? Um, and, like, and they would, they, would, uh, they would walk forward, right? And as they would walk forward, they would pull this plow behind them, and in doing so, they would plow the farmer's field, 
right? So the yoke was that wooden cross piece that, that connected them um, and, and connected them to, to the plow. And the two animals that were often used for this were, were two oxen. Um, so when two things are yoked together, as it says here in 2 Corinthians 6.14, um, you can think of these two things as being teamed up or unified or brought together or partnered, okay? That's a good way to, good way to think about it. And verse 14 here in our main passage specifically says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And, and, and the general idea of not being unequally yoked originally comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. Uh, which says, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. It's a very simple verse. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. All right, this is the first time we see this concept. In this verse from Deuteronomy 22, God is prohibiting the yoking, uh, the yoking together of two different animals. And it, God is speaking against the joining of two things that should not be joined. He's saying, this should not be. Right? And it would have been ridiculous to have an ox and a donkey paired up or teamed up under one yoke because the ox was so much stronger than the donkey. And because the ox was so much stronger than the donkey, the donkey wouldn't be able to keep up. And the plow would be all cockeyed. And therefore, the, the farmer's field would be all, all cockeyed. And it would, actually, it, would, it would actually ruin the farmer's field. And it wouldn't be good. And now applying this to our context today, why is it so important that we as Christians are not yoked together with unbelievers? The answer, influence. Influence is the reason why we as Christians should not be yoked together with unbelievers. You see, we humans were created, were designed to be influenced, to be shaped to be discipled. We're actually referred to as clay in the scriptures, and clay is something that gets molded and gets shaped, right? And God created us and designed us this way so that we could be discipled, influenced, and shaped by him, and by his word, and by his spirit, and by godly Christian leaders in our lives. That's why God designed us that way, to be influenced, shaped, and discipled. And even though we were designed to be influenced, discipled, and shaped by God, and by his word, and by his spirit, and godly Christian leaders in our lives, we so often allow so many other things to influence us, disciple us, and shape us. And we allow so many things that have no business discipling us, influencing us, and shaping us to influence us, disciple us, and shape us. Things like the news, TikTok, Instagram, Netflix, YouTube, secular music, money, the American dream, political candidates, peer pressure, worldly culture, and the world in general. We so often allow all these things to influence us, disciple us, and shape us. We literally call, like, th like this, is, this, is, um, this is amazing to me. We literally call the most famous people on TikTok and Instagram influencers. We call them influencers because that's exactly what they're doing. These people are shaping and influencing and discipling the people who are following them and taking in their content. 
You know, we have to have that view that that's, what, that's what's happening. And they're doing it as they advance and teach worldviews, trends, lifestyles, perspectives, goals, treasures, and temptations. And, and, and in saying this, I, I, do want, I do want to make it clear to you that not everything on these platforms is bad or corrupt or ungodly. Right? I'm not just generally demonizing all of those things. Right? It's not what I'm trying to do. My wife, Susie, will regularly show me like funny videos, whether like cats or the tortilla slap challenge or something like that. I love those videos. Those are so funny. Um, so like not, not, everything, not, not everything on those platforms is bad. Right? And I want to make that clear to you. But I also want to make it clear to you that the bad and the corrupt and the toxic content, and even the content that is opposing God and his word and his heart is a lot more prevalent than you think. A lot more prevalent than you think. We so often allow the things of the world and the people of the world to influence us, disciple us, and shape us. And, and what's the problem with this? What's the problem with us allowing the things of the world and the people of the world to influence us, disciple us, and shape us? Well, the first problem is that a Christ follower and a person of the world have such different perspectives on so many things. And not only that, guess what? A Christ follower and a person of the world are entirely different creations. You realize that? In Christ, we are the new creations that 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about. Grant talked about this last week in his sermon. The people of the world who are not in Christ are still the old creation. So Christians and the people of the world are entirely different creations with entirely different trajectories. And just look at the polar opposite and the profoundly distinct identifiers that the Apostle Paul uses in our 2 Corinthians 6 passage as he contrasts a Christ follower and a person of the world. And this is again, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. I'm going to read this slowly. Since, since you don't have it on the screen, I'm going to read this slowly. I want you to hear these things, okay? He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does the believer have in common with an unbeliever? These are polar opposite identifiers. Righteousness and wickedness. Polar opposite. Light, darkness, polar opposite. Christ and Belial. Brothers and sisters, Belial is the ancient name of Satan. Belial is the ancient name of Satan in the Old Testament. So there is definitely a huge contrast here as well in the other identifiers. And Paul finally says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? A follower of Christ and a person of the world have totally different perspectives and are totally different creations. I just want to read off a, a, a list to you. I had this on the screens, but I just want to um, read off this list of all the things that are so different in the life of a born-again Christian and in the life of a not-yet-Christian. Okay? Priorities, pursuits, passions, attitudes, values, treasures, focus, purpose, conformity, direction, thoughts, goals, and even more. All those things are so different 
in the life of a born-again Christian and the life of a person of the world. And since a Christ follower and a person of the world have entirely different perspectives and are entirely different creations, we should not be influenced, discipled, or shaped by the things of the world or the people of the world. And another reason, this, this, this is very similar to what we just said, but another reason why it's important for us to be influenced, or why it's, uh, sorry, why it's a problem for us to be influenced, shaped, and discipled by the things of the world or the people of the world is that the people of the world have a different God than you. The people of the world have a different God than you. Because everyone has at least one God in their life. The question is who or what someone's God is. As Christians, our God is Jesus, and Jesus alone, the living and true God. For the people of the world, their God is either sex, pleasure, entertainment, family, success, fame, money, approval, comfort, travel, the American dream, or something else like this, or even a combination of those things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things that I just listed off when used appropriately, but they are awful gods. All those things are awful gods. And we are to have no other God than one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since a Christ follower and a person of the world have different gods, again, we should not be influenced, shaped, or discipled by the things of the world or the people of the world. And yet another problem of us being influenced, shaped, and discipled by the things of the world and the people of the world has to do with the fruit of the influence. Okay, the, the fruit of the influence. And what I mean uh, by this is what the influence produces in us. Or the state, mentally, emotionally, physically, socially, spiritually, that the influence puts us into. This is what I mean by the fruit of the influence. Influence from the things of the world and the people of the world oftentimes produces the fruit of anxiety, fear, insecurity, low self-esteem, discontentment, comparison, anger, judgment, jealousy, division, selfishness, and sin amongst other things as well. Whereas influence from Christ and the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, life, contentment, security, acceptance, forgiveness, rest, encouragement, confidence, freedom, and growth. And I know that all of you know that this is true. I know that many of you, if not all of you, have experienced it, this fruit of influence. So again, we're not to be influenced, shaped, or discipled by the things of the world or the people of the world. And I want to take some time to show you and remind you of what we as Christians are called to in the scriptures when it comes to the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As followers of Christ, we are called to not conform to the patterns, ways, perspectives, and gods of this world. Rather, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the Holy Spirit. Transformed away from and out of worldliness and into holiness. As Christians, we're also called to be holy and to be pure. God's word in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Here in this passage, we can clearly, clearly see that we're called to be holy and pure as Christians. And I want to specifically point out to you that this passage tells us that we are to be holy and to be pure in all that we do and all that we are, holy and pure, just as God is holy and pure. For those of you who don't know, the word holy means to be set apart or to be different. Set apart or different. And we're not to be set apart or different from each other as Christians, but to be set apart and different from the world. Completely set apart from the world. And James 1.27 is another place in the Bible where we see that we are called to be pure as Christians. And when I say this, I don't just mean sexually pure. That that most definitely is included. But I'm also talking about being completely pure from the corruption and pollution of the world. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There it is right there. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world by the world. Completely pure from the pollution and the corruption and influence of the world. And as a real quick side note, this right here in James 127, what was the, anybody remember what the first word was in that verse? No, it was religion. This verse right here, James 127, like I said, this is a side note, but I still, I still think it's, it's valuable. This is one of the only places in the New Testament that religion is spoken of in a positive context. You know that? It's not the only place it's it's spoken to, spoken about in a positive context, but it's one of the only places. And this shows us, even in the Bible, that God is so much more focused and passionate about relationship with you than empty or legalistic religion. Religion religion is good, and it has its purpose, but it's about relationship. I just thought you guys would enjoy that, if you didn't know that. Um, So going going back to what we were just talking about, as Christians, we're called to not conform to the pattern of this world. We're called to be holy, and we're called to be pure from the corruption and pollution and influence of the world. Our main passage in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, says, We are the temple of the living God. We're the temple of the living God. We are are to be devoted to keeping our God's temple pure, holy, undefiled, and righteous. And since we are the temple of the living God, we are to be devoted to keeping ourselves, 
our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our lives pure, holy, undefiled, and righteous. And we are not our own. We're all bought at a price by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. And because we were bought at a price by the precious blood of Jesus, we belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. Guess what? The temple doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And it is his desire that we would keep it holy, pure, undefiled, and righteous. And we do this by protecting our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our lives. And I want to make it clear to you, as Christians, we can't be in this middle ground of having the kingdom of God and the world. We can't be in the middle ground. We're to have no alliance, no partnership, no teaming up with the kingdom of darkness, which is the kingdom of the world. God's word in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, tells us that God the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness by Jesus Christ. So how could we go on living in it or making alliances with it or partnerships with it now that we've been rescued from it? Right? And the Bible continues to speak at length about this truth that we cannot have the kingdom of God and the world all across its pages. To give you just two more examples of this, James 4, 4 through 5 makes it clear. This is James writing. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit, our soul, that he has caused to dwell in us? He jealously longs for it. And in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, God's word says this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's clear from the scriptures that we cannot have the kingdom of God and the world too. Now with all of this said, I want to present a question to you. And if you've heard nothing else, hear this. Okay? Who or what is discipling you? Who or what is influencing you? Who or what is shaping you? Or maybe, or maybe a better way to ask this is this. Who or what are you allowing to influence you? disciple you, and shape you? Is it the things of the world, or is it the things of Christ? I really, really challenge you to think about who or what you're allowing to disciple you, shape you, and influence you. Because the question is not if. The question is not if you're being influenced, discipled, and shaped, but who or what you're being influenced, influenced, discipled, and shaped by. And this is very, very important. And I want you all to remember that there's a real spiritual enemy and a real spiritual war happening all around us. And the, spirituals, the spiritual enemy's prime target 
is you. Satan wants to seduce the church, God's people, to join the world. This is a huge strategy of Satan. You see this through Revelation 2, Revelation 3. And Satan will attempt to do this subtly, secretly, and under your own nose so that you won't even realize that it's him behind it all, sabotaging you, polluting you, and wrecking you and your soul. And God gives us a clear warning and heads up in his word where 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. The Corinthian Christians thought like worldly people and acted like worldly people, not like godly people. And this is why the Apostle Paul had to correct them so much in the biblical books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's all about correction in those books. The Corinthian Christians gained this way of thinking and operating because they allowed the world and people from the world to influence them, disciple them, and shape them. And here in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul tells the, the Corinthian Christians to break their yokes of partnership with the world and to guard themselves from ungodly influence. And he's telling us the same thing today. Most Christians are far too casual with what they allow to influence them, disciple them, and shape, and shape them. But here at H2O, let's be Christians who take back our hearts, who take back our souls, who take back our minds, and who take back our lives from the grip and the influence of the world and the spiritual enemy. Taking it all back and giving it to who it belongs to. And this brings us back to what we talked about towards the beginning of this sermon regarding protectiveness. I asked you if there's anything in your life that you've ever been very protective of, and I talked about how I tend to be very protective of my shoes, right? And everything we just talked about brings up this question. Are we being protective of the health and purity and godliness of our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our lives? Brothers and sisters, you must be humble in this truth that we are all influenced, discipled, and shaped by who we are around and by what we consume, by what we take in. In our pride, we all like to believe that we can be around and consume ungodly things as much as we want, and that we're strong enough to ward off the influence, that we're strong enough to be unaffected by it. But with humility, we must take seriously the words of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, where the Apostle Paul writes, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. And in addition to this, Jesus himself speaks into how we operate in Matthew 6, when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And here in this Matthew 6 passage, Jesus is telling us that we are significantly affected and significantly impacted by what we are focusing on and what we are taking in. The Bible speaks to this, and we have to be humble. And I want to talk to you about what some specific ways are to be unequally yoked with unbelievers so that you can avoid it. I, just, I don't want to just keep this general for you. 
The first way that a Christian can be unequally yoked with an unbeliever is by marrying an unbeliever or beginning a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. And this is most definitely the most common way that this scripture is applied and, and, and thought of and, and used. Um, and this is very, very important. God, right here in his word, prohibits. He doesn't just advise against it. He prohibits a Christian from marrying a not yet Christian. So that means there should be no flirt to convert approaches. Right? No missionary dating or missionary marriage. It doesn't mean missionaries can't get married. That's not, that's not what that means. Missionary dating or missionary marriage is when a Christian enters into a romantic relationship or marriage with a not yet Christian in hopes of leading them to Christ someday or eventually. But this is prohibited because in doing so, you'll be yoking yourself together with an unbeliever. Generally, people spend a lot of time around and with their significant other. Probably not new, not new news to you that people spend a lot of time with their significant other. And because of that, people are most definitely influenced, shaped, and discipled by their significant other. Never in my life did I think I would be a cat person. And then I married my wife. We have two precious babies now. Cat, cat babies, cat babies. Right? I, I, like, Susie, big time cat lover. I was not. I married Susie, now I'm a cat lover. It happens. I was influenced by her. Um, people are most definitely influenced by their significant other. So it is important that we as Christians are not marrying or entering into romantic relationships with not yet Christians. Um, and it's important that the person you marry doesn't just believe in Jesus intellectually, but actually follows Jesus as their king. Right. Now, if you're sitting here today, and this is your first time hearing this, and you are a Christian who is in a romantic relationship with a not yet Christian, I don't believe that the only option you have is to end, end the relationship immediately. I don't believe that that's your only option. Rather than just ending the relationship immediately, you have the option of choosing to intentionally talk with your significant other in the near future, the near future, about Jesus and following Jesus to gauge where they are at. If your significant other's heart is open, willing, and receptive to Jesus and following Jesus and learning about Jesus, then you can stay in that relationship as long as your significant other follows through with actually seeking Jesus for themselves. However, if your significant other's heart is not open, willing, or receptive to Jesus and following Jesus and learning about Jesus, that is when it is the time for that relationship to be ended. Your devotion and love for Jesus must be greater than your devotion and love for anything else, including your significant other. And if this is you that I'm, talking, I'm specifically talking to right now, I encourage you to talk to a staff member, a life group leader, or even a prayer person here at church as soon as you can, because we want to help you navigate through this, okay? Um, for those of you who are not in a romantic relationship with a not yet Christian at the moment, um, you should, you should not enter into a romantic relationship with a not-yet-Christian at any point. Okay? Um, and know this. This is important. This applies to other things as well. General good character and general good morality is not an excuse or a substitute. General good character 
in general, good morality is not an excuse or substitute. Because brothers and sisters, our God is not morality. Our God is Jesus. And there is most definitely crossover there. But at the same time, they're very different. Our God is not morality. Our God is a real and living king. His name is Jesus. And it's the presence and the reality of Jesus that truly changes things, that transforms things, and makes someone a new creation. So one way to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever is by marrying an unbeliever or beginning a romantic relationship with an unbeliever. But there's also more. This is important because it's not, being yoked together with unbelievers is not just confined to that. There's also more to it than that. This principle in this scripture from 2 Corinthians 6 also applies to any environment or way or avenue in which, in which we allow the world, things from the world, worldly culture, or someone from the world to influence us, disciple us, and shape us. It also very much applies to that. Whenever we're being conformed to the world and are not being transformed by the renewing of our minds, we join together or yoke together with unbelievers in an ungodly way. Um, and it can be through all sorts of things. Uh, an ungodly friend, a book, social media, a movie, a magazine, um, all, all, all sorts of, all sorts of, of different, different avenues there. Um, and with all this said, I want to make something very, very clear to you in all of this. Here in 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul is not suggesting that we never associate with not yet Christians. The Apostle Paul is not suggesting that we never associate or interact with unbelievers, not yet Christians. We see in the Gospels that Jesus was actually referred to as a friend of sinners. And Jesus obtained that title because he associated with, interacted with, invested in, and loved on the people of the world. But when Jesus interacted with them and was around them, Jesus was the influencer, not the influenced. As Christians, we should still most definitely associate with, interact with, and be great friends with not yet Christians in our lives. Because guess what? They need someone in their lives to love them and to talk to them about and to show them Jesus and the gospel and the love of God. We just need to watch out for any kind of ungodly or worldly influence when we are with them and around them. Like Jesus, we need to be the influencers, not the influenced in those settings. As Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. In chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is on trial before Pilate at the end of his earthly life. And in response to one of Pilate's questions, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And in chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, just one chapter earlier, Jesus, who is the Son of God, is praying to God the Father for his disciples. And he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So here in these verses from the Gospel of John, we can clearly see this concept and this truth of being in the world, but not of the world as Christians. 
And some of you have maybe heard this phrase, in the world but not of the world, before. If you have, I don't want you to rush through this or just breeze through it as old news or something that you already know. I want you to really think about it. I want you to really think about whether you are or recently have been of the world or of Christ in the kingdom of God in the way you've been living your life. Something else that I really felt led to share with you all is this. We are to be Christians, children of God, and citizens of heaven 100% of the time. There is no part-time Christianity. It is full-time. It's all the time. We are to be fully devoted to Jesus in everything and at all times, no matter what. In everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, everything we consume, in all that we are. Christians, 100% of the time. Because Jesus Christ and our personal relationship with Jesus impacts all of our life. Literally all. And he is worthy of that. He is worthy of all. If you allow yourself to be yoked together with the world, whether that's through a romantic relationship with an unbeliever, influence from social media, uh, ungodly content that you're taking in or something else, you will be affected by that. It's not a question of if you'll be affected by it, but how much you'll be affected by it. And this, in turn, will significantly affect those around you, including fellow Christians in the church. As I mentioned earlier, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, the Apostle Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. I want you to I want you to really hear that. We are the temple of the living God. We, plural, are the temple, singular, of the living God. You see that? We, plural, are the singular temple of the living God. We together make up the temple of the living God. We are all connected together and built together to make up the temple of the living God. So when you allow yourself to be corrupted, polluted, or influenced by the world, you actually bring that pollution and that corruption into the temple, into the body of Christ, and it affects other members of the body of Christ. It doesn't just affect you, it affects others as well. Because of this, it's important that we have strong accountability with each other in this, as we together are the temple of the living God. If you see someone really like, I don't know, like watching a movie they really shouldn't watch, and you know it's something they shouldn't watch. Say something. Right? Or if you know someone's lifestyle and what, 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 they're, what they're spending time around, what they're consuming, say something. Right? When you become a Christian, you gave up the right to mind your own business. <clears throat> Each member of the temple affects the other members of the temple. If we do a good job of holding each other accountable in this, we'll be, we'll be protecting the ones we are holding accountable, but we will also be protecting ourselves and everyone else in the body of Christ as well. Returning back to our main passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 6 now, verses 16 through 18, says this, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. 
Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the commandment from verse God, uh, the commandment from God in verse 17, to come out from them and be separate, which is what we've been talking about a lot already this morning, is actually coupled with a promise from God in verse 18, where he says, I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. So there's a commandment and a promise in verses 17 and 18. And here in these verses, God is telling us, if we will separate ourselves from worldly thinking, acting, and influence, we are promised a closer relationship with him. And this is a glorious promise for all those who are willing to separate themselves from the world and the world's influence for the sake of godliness and holiness. And as I mentioned earlier in this sermon, as Christians, we're called to be holy, which means that, that we're called to be set apart, to be different. But our calling to holiness is not just to be generally set apart or generally different. Rather, we're called to be set apart from the world, but also set apart to God. Right? Do you, you understand that? Does that make sense? Set apart from the world, but also set apart to God. Separate from evil and unto God. Holy to him. Um, man, what an opportunity. And what an awesome motive we have in this. This is a promise. Let's be Christians who make the most of this opportunity, this invitation, and this, and this promise from God. And God is always faithful to all of his promises, so you can trust him in this. So if we will choose to diligently separate ourselves from worldly influences and separate ourselves unto God, we will find him even more and go to deeper depths of intimacy and closeness with him. How awesome is that? brothers and sisters, it's not worth it to sacrifice greater intimacy with God for the things of the world. It's not worth it. I've been there. It's not worth it. The book of Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin in Hebrews 3.13. And it's so true that sin is deceitful. The temptation to sin says that giving in to sin or following sin, whatever it may be, will satisfy you fulfill you, complete you, make society work better, and that it will be good. But hear this. The temptation to sin is always an alluring and deceiving lie. Because it comes from the father of lies. What sin truly does is leave us disappointed, let down, hurt, empty, and broken. But it is God and the things of God that truly satisfy us, fulfill us, complete us, and renew us. So what will it be for you? Greater personal intimacy and closeness with God or the things of the world? From talking about all this stuff of influence and shaping and discipling, I want to point out to you that you can actually leverage this reality for good and for godliness. Whether you know it or not, and whether you even mean to or not, you are influencing, shaping, and discipling the people that you are around. The way you talk, the perspectives that you have, the attitudes that you have, the way you live your life, what you give yourself to, what your priorities are, and so much more. You are influencing, shaping, and discipling the people that you are around. And this begs the question, how or in what ways are you influencing, shaping, and discipling the people that you're around? Are you influencing others towards worldliness Sin, coarse joking, passiveness, negativity, coveting, and sensuality? 
Are you influencing others towards Jesus and godliness and holiness and righteousness? It's my hope and my prayer that we would all be very sobered by this reality and this truth that we influence each other on a daily basis. You have the power to influence, to shape, and disciple those that you're around. We have just one more verse to look at together this morning, and then um, we'll be done. And it's the first verse, 2 Corinthians 7, which says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Here in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us and urging us to purify ourselves from the contamination that we have already received or that we already have in us. Or in other words, to, to cleanse ourselves. You see, there's a certain kind of cleansing that only God can do and does in our lives. But there's also a cleansing that God wants us to do in partnership or in cooperation with him. It is the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses us of the guilt and the penalty of our sins when we place our faith in him. And this is the kind of cleansing that saves our soul for all eternity. But that is not the kind of cleansing that the Apostle Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 7. The cleansing that the Apostle Paul is referring to here doesn't have to do with the cleansing of our souls for eternal salvation, but rather a cleansing of our hearts, our minds, and our lives for the sake of greater personal intimacy with God and greater usefulness for the kingdom of God. You can think of the cleansing that the Apostle Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 7.1 as a sanctification kind of cleansing, not an eternal salvation kind of cleansing. And if you're unfamiliar with what the word sanctification means, since, since it is kind of a, a, a big theological word, um, it's a word we use when referring to the process of being made more holy and being made more like Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ saves us when we place our faith in him, and that, is the, and that is when the process of sanctification begins, as we are made more and more holy throughout our early, earthly lives, as we are made more and more like Jesus. And sanctification is the cleansing that Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 7.1. And I think something that this verse really, really helps us to see and to understand is that sanctification requires our input our effort, our attention, our will, and our activeness. Sanctification requires our input, our effort, our attention, our will, and our activeness. I think we sometimes have this view that, that sanctification just happens automatically without, any, without, without anything of us. It's just it's like pixie dust. It just flies down from heaven. But that is not the case at all. We are not sanctified as we just sit there like a bump on a log. You just stay where you're at. The process of sanctification is something that is accomplished through a partnership between each of us and God. And that's why Paul is encouraging and urging the Corinthians and us to cleanse ourselves from contamination here in 2 Corinthians 7.1. And it's certainly not all of our doing. I want to make that clear. It's not all of our doing but it is a cleansing that is accomplished as we partner with God. And I want you to see that, that 2 Corinthians 7, 1 specifically tells us to purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. There's a distinction there that Paul makes. 
See, there's a sinful contamination of the body or of the flesh, and these are the sins that are usually more obvious. Things like sexual sin, gluttony, unwholesome talk, lying, drunkenness, coveting, gossip, passiveness and laziness, and other sins like these. But there's also a sinful contamination of the spirit, which is a little deeper. And these are the things like pride, legalism, selfishness, self-righteousness, bitterness, hatred, envy, and jealousy. These things that are deeper, deeper than just the surface. Contamination of the spirit. And all sin is destructive and wrong, but these sins of the spirit are oftentimes especially destructive, toxic, and pervasive. We, are, we ironically oftentimes overlook the sins of the spirit and seem to just focus on cleansing ourselves from the contamination of the flesh. But just as Paul says here, we are to be devoted to cleansing ourselves from both. And as we partner with God to accomplish this sanctification kind of cleansing, we will go to deeper and deeper depths with God in our personal intimacy and personal relationship with him, which is awesome. And with that said, that's a full breakdown of our main passage of scripture here this morning. So in my hope, in my prayer, that the Holy Spirit has been weaving and threading these things into your heart, into your soul, into your mind, and in your lives. And you would ponder these questions. Have you been living your life in the world, but not of the world? Who or what are you allowing to disciple you, influence you, and shape you? And and are you really seeking to, to partner with God in this process of sanctification in your life? growing deeper with him now that you've been brought into the family by the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray this would go with you. Let me pray for us. Father God, God, you've been so kind to me today. God, I thank you for that. God, I thank you for your love and your faithfulness, your kindness, your power. God, I pray that today was even a testament, God, both to me and to every single person in this room of, God, your reality. God, how you strengthen us, you provide for us, God. And God, I pray that all these words spoken today, these questions asked, God, would stick with all of us all of our hearts, all of our souls, our minds, and our lives, God, we would grow in you. God, help us to be devoted, God, to being influenced, shaped, and discipled, Jesus, by you, by your word, by your spirit, by your people. Help us to be people who do engage with and love the people of the world well, but to be influencers and not the influenced in those settings. God, I pray that you would draw us deeper from this time. We would grow in you. We would be devoted to being your people 100% of the time as we are consumed by you more and more and more as our king and as our God as our everything.
God, I pray, God, that you give us just such a sweet awareness and recognition of your presence and your nearness with us as we transition into the second worship set and as we go from this place, being your people. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.